welcome back to Mesoamerican Studies On Air. My name is Catherine Wilde, and today I'm going to be sharing with you my interview with cognitive linguist Agnieszka Haman. Haman has an interest in the application of cognitive linguistic methodology to the study of the language of ancient Maya texts. She has published on certain aspects of semantics in classic Mayan, certain aspects of grammar, including theme orientation, agency, and the concept of possession in classic Mayan, and the multimodality of communication, that is, how the layout, image, and text of Mayan hieroglyphics cooperate to deliver the message. Her current projects focus on how the notions of space and time seem to be conceptualized in classic Mayan. Agnes, thank you so much for taking the time to be here and to talk with me today about your research. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me here. My pleasure, absolutely. So I wanted to start by just talking a little bit about what you do. You are a cognitive linguist. Now, how would you describe what you do as a cognitive linguist? Uh, As a cognitive linguist, I'm looking at ways that products of our mind show how we think. So that includes, first of all, language, which is supposed to reflect the way we conceptualize things, so the the way we think about the world around us. Uh, But also that includes other products of our minds, such as uh, art, for example. We find the same conceptual phenomena in language and in images and in architecture, generally in everything that we produce. So what what got you interested in this field? Um, you know, like I, I have studied a lot of kinds of linguistics over the years, and no linguistic school allowed me to uh, analyze and draw conclusions about things in in the entirety of a text or linguistic material I had. There were always those limitations like, oh no, this goes into pragmatics, this goes into something else. And what cognitive linguistics gave me is this variety of material I can include and consistent methodology to analyze them. So as a linguist, I'm most interested in language, but not only. So I can, especially in in Maya text, this is very important to look at the text and to look at the image because they work together. And cognitive linguistics allows me to do both. I I think what you said there is, is really important, highlighting the fact that for Maya art especially, the, the text and the image are so interrelated. You can't really separate one from the other and still maintain the whole of the message that's being communicated. Exactly. We call it multimodality of communication. So uh, each mode, each channel of communication provides some information. So part of it will be hidden in text, part of it will be hidden in the uh, image, in gestures. Like putting all those things together allows us to, you know, understand the whole message, what this ancient uh, scribe wanted to say, what 
he or she wanted us to understand. And this way we, we, we get closer to better understanding people. Mm-hmm. The title of your article is Through the Valley of the Shadow of Death. Um, death is a typical domain requiring non-literal treatment. And I thought this article was fantastic. And what I think really stands out in this article is the way that you can really get into the minds of people, obviously not perfectly, but you can get a really good understanding of what they were thinking and how they viewed death. Um, So can you explain a little bit about what led you to this question about viewing death as a non-literal idea or being represented non-literally? This is one of, of very popular topics in cognitive linguistics. Yeah, death has been analyzed, the domain of death has been analyzed in many different languages. And, you know, like, after having studied cognitive linguistics methodology for years, I thought, well, what better way to test this methodology than to apply it to material so difficult to understand as classic Mayan, the language used uh, 2,000, over 1,000 years ago on the other end of the world, you know, like by cultures so different from European cultures that if, if, it's, if it's possible to make deductions about how people think based on language, then my research should contribute something to under to our understanding. And it's, I was kind of surprised at the beginning how easy it was for me to find all all those conceptual phenomena like metaphor, conceptual metonymy, conceptual blending in classic Mayan. The, the, The range of topics is kind of limited because they only wrote about certain things and they, we, we don't have, you know, like a full corpus encompassing all areas of life. Just, you know, those historical texts, a bit of religious texts or mythical uh, stories. And still, in spite of, you know, those limitations of our corpus of myaglyphic texts, you can find there metaphors, metonymies, blending, reference point construction, phenomenon after phenomenon, I analyze the text and I find the same cognitive mechanisms as in European languages, as in modern languages that have been analyzed. And death is one of the difficult experiences that we all have, all cultures all over the world, everybody has to go through this. And because it is so, you know, like, unpredictable and so finite and it changes our lives forever it's not so easy to deal with it emotionally and this kind of this is true for all languages all cultures and this is why to try to kind of bring it to human perspective we tend to use non-literal language to talk about it and to think about it because it's easier for us we bring death 
to human perspective and we uh, talk about it in a way which makes it possible to deal with it. So we conceptualize it as a person or some at least creature that we can interact with, that we can somehow try to fight and maybe we have a chance of winning. So it, it becomes less, you know, like uh, daunting and less frightening. Right. Yeah. And I think that, like you say, you know, that that's a very human thing to do and it does bring, it gives us some sort of power in a situation that we really don't have much power over. Exactly. Yeah. If you just imagine that death is another person, you can try to communicate with it, to uh, fight it, to discuss and maybe win. Right. So it's, yeah. In your article, you mention four or I guess five different phrases that the ancient Maya used to describe death. And I think that they were, they were really beautiful ways of talking about death. And most of them you mentioned refer to death as a sort of journey. It's a metaphor for a journey. Can you tell me a little bit about those phrases and how you think people might have conceptualized them? So, um, death is a common topic and sometimes it is, described with the simple verb to die, charm to die, but it's not that often. Uh, most of the time it will be one of those non-literal um, expressions. Three of them are connected with the way um, we metaphorically think of death or the Maya metaphorically thought about death as a journey. So this is och has to water enter, och to road enter, and och to mountain enter. So this, the, all three of them draw on this kind of probably Pan-American, not only Maya concept, but like Pan-American concept of um, water, and very often mountain and road being parts of the uh, of this journey that is in fact death so caves in mountains were very often um, burial places especially cenotes so uh, water uh, caves with kind of water features also were burning places. Um, and the journey very often started in water, in a mountain, and then went on to the underworld. The fourth expression is more metonymic uh, because it describes death in terms of determination of certain physiological processes such as breath, but also we've got varieties um, uh, including other uh, physiolog physiological processes and determination of them means that life is finished and death begins. So not all of those expressions are metaphors, 
in the cognitive understanding of a metaphor as a conceptual phenomenon. The, the, this last one is metonymic. And we see this, right, in the text. These are these are things that are frequently written in the glyphic text, but it's also represented in the art accompanying it, right? Right. It's also in the image. So we've got images of people, uh, in this case, uh, gods, you know, taken in a canoe. Uh, so, you know, via water, some water tract. Uh, to the, into the underworld um, and very often the image hints on death even if it's not mentioned outright you know like it, it just hints by using water imagery so we might have some you know droplets of water or water lilies suggesting that death is involved somehow, but the text doesn't mention it. This is the case for of Kankwen um, panel three, where the text describes a period ending and then a dedication of a piece of architecture, but doesn't mention this death of this person, which happened in between, but the imagery around the text points to it very obviously. Mm-hmm. So this is, again, multimodality, how those two modes of expression, text and image, cooperate to deliver the final message. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's something that we see over and over again in my art, like you mentioned. And it's so cool that with this field, you can, you know, you, you, you can do this with other fields or through other disciplines as well. But I feel like you really have a great way of looking at not just the object that was produced or what was created but you can also look at why it was created because you get that cognitive look into things you can understand a little bit more of the motive behind it yes exactly this is this is the 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 most important feature of cognitive linguistics that it is so you know like general and all-encompassing and it allows us to analyze everything we want, whether it's sound or written language or image that accompanies language, it's really wonderful to be able to look at all aspects of of the situation. Mm -hmm. So I think a great example of this would be the funerary mask that you mentioned in your article from Kalakmul. So when when you look at this Kalakmul funerary mask, Obviously, there are pieces of iconography that if you understand the iconography, you can kind of get an idea of what's going on there. But with cognitive linguistics, what can you tell just from looking at that mask and applying what you know from the field? Right. This mask you mentioned is exactly an illustration of this uh, metonymic uh, expression, his breath uh, terminated, right? Uh, because in this mask, we can see some elements which normally people don't have on their faces. So under the, the person's nose, there is something white kind of issuing from the nose and the same is under the mouth. Those white things represent this breath which is leaving 
the body, right? So the, 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 the breath, the human wind leaves the body and then the person is dead. And in this case, it's, expe- it's especially helpful because there's not exactly a text associated with this. But because of what you understand, you can look at it just as an object and understand what it is that it's trying to communicate. Exactly. This expression, his, his breath terminated, is just part of this knowledge base that each Maya person has or had in ancient times in their heads. And knowing the language allows us to understand also image. Right. So what would you say were the biggest takeaways from this article? For me, the most important thing here was that my methodology works for you know, a language which we still don't understand perfectly, but a language which was graphelect. So the, 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 the range of topics was really limited. Uh, and, you know, like, I can read those texts, and in spite of being a member of a different culture and have, having imperfect knowledge of this language, I still can find uh, cognitive phenomena that uh, are pervasive in all languages. My research shows that it's true also for classic Mayan. Well, thank you so much, Agnes, for sharing your research in this new article with me. I really hope that we can have you on the show again sometime soon. For anyone interested in learning more about Agnieszka Haman's work, feel free to look at her academia profile, which is listed on the Mesoamerican Studies online website under this episode. Thank you so much for listening today, and I hope you'll tune in next week.